comrades and welcome to where's my jetpack i'm Ani white and this is my very attractive unfairly hot stunningly sexy breathlessly cute ridiculously good looking criminally cute exceptionally lovely dangerously intoxicating tantalizingly present irresistibly snugglable scrumptiously tasty magnetically hunky cosmically attractive seasonally hot in the southern hemisphere anyway co-host Derek johnson Thank you, Ani, and uh, Feliz Navidad, dear listeners. Also, thanks to all who contributed to our crowdfunding campaign for anti-fascist interview transcription. Most of all, New Zealand's Eco-Socialist Education Society for their generous pledge of 140 euros and Radical Action Grants for their even more generous donation of 290 euros. We'd also like to thank Byron Clark for donating, as well as those we've thanked in previous episodes. Thanks to your donations, we have transcribed all 10 plus hours of content, paying transcribers for over half of those, and transcribing the remaining ones in-house. You can find the transcripts at our blog, jetpack.zoob.net, with the master list of transcripts pinned to the top. Now for our last episode of 2020, we've got a kaiju-themed episode. For those who don't know, kaiju is the Japanese word for strange monster, generally referring to giant fantasy beasts. A concept first popularized by Godzilla, which has crossed over to English language fandom. This episode is a sequel of sorts to last year's December episode, Thanos Was Wrong which was an ecologically-themed pop culture analysis, including a review of the underrated Godzilla 2019, easily the best American Godzilla. Damn straight. Very underrated. First, Ani and our guest, kaiju superfan Jace Short, are delving into the history of the kaiju genre with reviews of six eco-themed kaiju movies, specifically the original Godzilla, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Hedera, Godzilla vs. Biollante, Shin Godzilla, and The Host. Then Ani and I will conclude with a report from the No Fate Project on the surprise emergence of real kaiju on in our timeline. Rex, and I'm going to start with some Western kaiju flicks. Rampage, for one, starring The Rock. Yeah, that's great fun, and I'll watch The Rock in anything. He's very entertaining. Yeah, it was a favorite video game as a kid and as a teen when they made it on later consoles and in the arcade, and now I'd say that's a pretty good video game movie, though it did not do good in the theater, unfortunately. 
I would also like to rack both Pacific Rim and Pacific Rim Uprising, starring John Boyega, and Kong Skull Island, which is the second movie in Legendary Monsterverse to Godzilla 2019, and the third being Godzilla King of the Monsters, and the upcoming Godzilla vs. Kong. Yeah, I agree. Kong Skull Island is probably the best Western kaiju movie in a long time. It's got this kind of Apocalypse Now Vietnam kind of feel to it. So having Apocalypse Now with King Kong is a pretty interesting take and it's a fun movie. And we'll be reviewing mostly Japanese entries this month, one Korean entry. But there are some underappreciated Western kaiju movies, as you say. I don't think audiences or critics in the US really seem to get them. So, like, Godzilla 2019, which I think was a lot more in the spirit of of the Japanese Toho films than really either of the previous American Godzillas, that got savaged by critics. And, you know, kaiju fans I know who are are really into the Toho films tended to really enjoy the latest Godzilla. We'll get Jay Short on next year to review the new Godzilla vs. Kong in that series. And on that topic, I'm going to recommend his essay, Monsters of the Rift, Kaiju as Ciphers of Unbalance, in the book Giant Creatures in Our World, Essays on Kaiju and American Pop Culture. The chapter gives a broad overview on kaiju and ecology, and we'll be going into a bit more detail in reference to specific movies, whereas that gives a kind of a broad theoretical overview of the topic. Yeah, I just did not understand the ravaging by the critics and viewers that Godzilla 2019 got, given that uh, the 1998 one was such garbage. And it's like, here is a Godzilla movie done right, and then what do people complain about? It did like Jaws and Alien and didn't show you Godzilla for a while. And then they complain about that. And then with Godzilla King of Monsters, it gives you nothing but Kaiju and all of the Toho favorites. And then people still complain. So it's like you kind of get a, what do American viewers want and what do Kaiju fans want? If even they are complaining about King of the Monsters. So I, I just... I don't know what the issue is that these movies just don't do well and have to have such weird detraction. The only other wrecks on ecology I would make, and again it goes back to Japanese uh, media, is uh, Princess Mononoke and Final Fantasy Spirits Within. Controversial choice. Uh, Final Fantasy Spirits Within, I don't know, it's a very good experiment in like CGI animation, but I find the characters and stuff a little bit flat, um, but a a novel choice. Speaking of Final Fantasy, obviously the games have strong ecological themes. We've recently had the Final Fantasy VII remake, which is about eco-terrorists basically fighting a sort of a mega corporation with kind of fascist rule over the society. So yeah, that's a definite running theme throughout the Final Fantasy stuff. Well, I seem to be not the the only person with such great taste in that. I believe Max loves that movie as well. Yeah, Max Caulfield loves it. But, I mean, Max Caulfield isn't necessarily the best judge. I don't know. And it's a Square Enix-related product, maybe, too? True, true. Actually, that is a really good point. But um, as Chloe says at one point, why don't you take a black-and-white picture of it and call it... um, what was it, Lost Childhood? Like, I don't know if Max's aesthetic judgment is the best. Yeah, I liked it 
yeah, I could see how it was at a point where CGI still wasn't ready for prime time. It has nice hair animations. The lead has, has very nice hair. The faces and certain things, the eyes and stuff, wasn't, wasn't as bad as a movie of, let's say, uh, Christmas, was it the Christmas Express or something, where the eyes were soulless? and Polar Express. Roller Express, yeah. It's clearly like early CGI, but right when it was starting to do good for humans, photorealistic humans, but it was still a little stiff. I thought it was good on that level. I actually thought it was better on the technical level. It was more that the story just never really connected with me. It just felt flat. Yeah. I think maybe they spent so much time making sure that the technical stuff was right that they didn't focus on a story. And maybe where there was like some uncanny valley that didn't help with the characters being a bit sort of flattened one night. I really appreciated the sci-fi versus animism uh, storyline there, sci-fi story. Yeah, yeah, I can see that it's a good concept for a story. I think mainly what would make it work a lot better is if the characters were something people can invest in. Because, like, you know, the Final Fantasy games, the RPGs, and a lot of it, you know, people get really into the characters. People like Cloud, you know, people sort of love Tifa and debate Tifa versus... What's her name? What's her name? Aren't they a little melodramatic given that they're Japanese yeah. media? So maybe they were trying to dial it back too much? They were trying to dial it back too much for an American audience? Sorry, I was trying to... I was trying, Eric, anyway, yeah, Tifa versus Eric, you know, people love the characters. Yeah, I mean, it feel, they feel like characters in an American action movie, I guess, which is, which is what it is. But, yeah, and there's not, not a lot of, like, anime here or extreme melodrama, which is, you know, have sort of cloud flopping around. Um, but, yes, I don't think that's, that's that compelling on a kind of emotional level. It just feels a bit cold. Yeah, it kind of has that next-gen Voyager kind of stiffness of emotion and everything. Yeah, on a non-kaiju-related note, uh, my Christmas-themed rec is the music video for the Lil Nas X track, Holiday. Now, you've probably heard Old Town Road, but this is his, his latest. And, you know, if you're in the nerd sphere, you may not be sort of following the Billboard charts. So it's, it's a fun one. I mean, the track itself is straightforward enough. It's pretty cussy for a Christmas song with the great line, I might bottom on the low, but I top shit, referencing his recent coming out as gay. But the video is incredible. It's it's the best Christmas movie since Die Hard. And also another on a non-kaiju-related note, more sort of political, the new Transnational Solidarity pod on Anchor and other platforms. This is put out by the Transnational Solidarity Network. And full disclaimer, I'm a member of that group. So to give you an idea, the first episode was... Radical Community versus Corona Capitalism, with contributions from a healthcare worker in Boston and an activist in Mexico City. And yeah, I think they're worth a listen. As always, we'll link these recs in our blog description at jetpack.zoop.net. I caught the election one as we were doing ours. Okay, for your real-life recs, wear a mask, wash your hands. For the love of God, don't travel for the holidays, and always check your sources of health information. So this month we're reviewing six classic kaiju flicks with our guest Jace Short. Jace is a doctoral student at the New School for Social Research. 
studying ancient philosophy, but also a huge kaiju fan who has spoken at several conventions on the topic, published some writings in Red Witch magazine, and published an article in the collection Giant Monsters in Our World by McFarland titled Monsters of the Rift, Kaiju as Ciphers of Unbalance. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Ani. So I guess I'll give like a little preliminary talk about kaiju and what they are. Okay, so the word kaiju refers to any kind of strange beasts, itself a subset of the larger category of yokai, which includes all sorts of creatures from Japanese lore. Kaiju can refer to any kind of monstrous creature like a werewolf or Frankenstein's monster. So technically we use the word daikaiju to denote these creatures of gargantuan size, creatures that director Shirohondo described as tragic beings. In his famous quotation he says, they are born too tall, too strong, too heavy. They are not evil by choice, and that is their tragedy. From their inception, they were born of the encounter between Japanese cultural forms and those of the U.S. and Europe, and were inspired by monster movies such as King Kong and the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. What's important in distinguishing them from other giant monsters is that they're not just giant animals on the loose. They're something more mythic. They hearken to the great chaos monsters of some of the oldest mythic narratives like in Mesopotamia and Greece that we have recorded by humans. Forces of nature like typhoons and earthquakes mixed with animalistic giants, mixed with divine power. There's something powerful about the mistaken naming of Godzilla himself, for instance. The Japanese is Gojira, a neologism combining the characters for ape and whale, giving the sense of a whale that walks upright like an ape. But when it was translated into English, it became easier and more marketable to kind of scrunch these together and say Godzilla. So the god here functions as a nice reminder, I think, of the divinity of these creatures. They're harbingers of the breakdown of human order and of a divine order of nature that reasserts itself. And when it asserts itself, monsters are born in the depths of the oceans and the caverns beneath our feet in the skies above us. So when we think of kaiju, we need to think in terms of the generation of new mythological forms adequate to our historical moment. Really the whole period post the great waves of colonization that culminated in World War I and its aftermath. I think it's hard to think of kaiju outside of these circumstances where they were born in movies in the 1930s and 1950s. They were really forged in the fires of imaginations of millions of people who underwent an actual apocalypse, reordering their world under the pressure of these colonial wars. And they speak adequately to this overwhelming growth and the scale of our lives from the world that's been brought into existence over the last century. Their massiveness, you know, is coupled with the massiveness of modern architecture and global communication and all of that. So, yeah, I think they're very important figures to understand the modern world. Thanks for that. I like that quote about too tall, too strong, too heavy. I mean, I always think, funny watching Godzilla, he sort of stumbles around knocking a lot of things over, but he doesn't always necessarily seem malicious. It's just that he's giant, so he happens to knock things over. It's like a funny aspect of, you know, almost like collateral damage. Anyway, again, thanks for coming on, and we'll start with the reviews now, unless you have any more comments, and just going to start with, you know, the original 50s Godzilla. So, yeah, go ahead with that. Yeah, and thank you, Ani, for having me on. I've been listening to the show from time to time, and I really enjoy it. You guys have a really great voice and are really into the stuff that I'm into. So, thank you very much. So, um, for the first one, we're going to review 
the original film Godzilla or Gojira. It's the 1954 film. So this film is truly Shiro Honda's masterpiece. That's the director. Uh, it came together due to a series of accidents, which I don't think it's necessary to go over here, but there's actually good writing on the topic of the film's production, particularly the uh, new biography of Honda written by Steve Rifle and Ed Gojicheski and Derek Callett's book, The Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla series. People tend to look down on these films, but Honda himself was a really wonderful filmmaker. He worked extensively with Kurosawa and Kurosawa's later films and actually did quite a bit of directing that, was, that went uncredited. And he, as a person, was a humanist to his core with a really a liberal cosmopolitanism at the center of his thought. And it shows in his films where, you know, ultimately you're going to end up with the heroes coming from places like the United Nations and this sort of supranational institutions that overcame Cold War division. Onto this film, Gojira, known as Godzilla King of the Monsters in its heavily edited American version, complete with insertions from actor Raymond Burr, is filmed in a documentarian style with an ensemble cast, but it often relates back to this character system with the love triangle of Emiko, her lover Ogata, and her betrothed, Dr. Serizawa. Serizawa sports an iconic eye patch from a wound where he lost his eye in World War II, and he represents the generation devastated by the war. Emiko respects him, but he really holds her back from embracing the vitality and youth of Ogata, and that's sort of shot through the film. Finally, Emiko's father, Dr. Yamane, leads us through the now familiar process of discovering the kaiju in the film. He's sort of the father of a lot of tropes that become common throughout kaiju films from then on. So the film opens with the flashes of light rising from the ocean's surface, blinding, and then incinerating helpless Japanese fishermen. First one ship goes down, then its rescue ship. Suddenly the entire country is in the grips of this crisis. And this is a reference to the Lucky Dragon incident, in which a Japanese fishing vessel called the Lucky Dragon No. 5 wandered through the U.S. quarantine zone of a nuclear blast, and when the U.S. tested its weapon, the crew suffered horrifying radiation burns. And it was a scandal in a society that had suffered from careful and deliberate censorship over what had actually happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There wasn't really a reckoning of those incidents until this happened. It also resulted in the pulling of fish from grocery shelves as they were found to be radioactive all over Japan. The scale, what people forget, of the firebombing of the country was so total and so devastatingly complete complete that these two bombings were still less destructive than the firebombing of Tokyo, a wooden city that burned under the onslaught of U.S. bombs, leaving 100,000 dead and the single most destructive air raid in world history. So this incident really brought to the Japanese consciousness the importance of what was significant and different about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they began to get more and more stories about what happened with radiation poisoning and burning. Now that the U.S. occupation was over, there was no longer censorship of the press, so they were learning about this, and at the same time Godzilla comes out. So we're led in the movie from mystery to mystery until the film settles on some surviving sailors making it to Odo Island off the Japanese coast. As a rule, many giant monsters come from the South Pacific, the untamed heartland of Japanese colonial conquest. Their return of the repressed of that colonialism on Japanese society. The locals say that the fishing vessels have been destroyed by Gojira, an ancient monster that has grown angry with its people for their breaking of tradition. Ceremonial dances, which are shown in the film no longer sate its thirst. The old order had involved human sacrifice, but now that the humans weren't doing it and something worse was going on with nuclear tests, the monster had changed and become something much more terrifying 
and threatening. Godzilla is revealed at this point in the film. Scientists investigate. They find radiation signature in his footprints. And this, I think, is a real key element of what makes the film so powerful. The Islanders are warned to keep away from the footprints after this. And we see that wherever Godzilla goes, death lingers through this radiation poisoning. This aspect of his terror is rarely replicated in future films. But it's what makes him so truly apocalyptic in this one. He can render any area a radioactive death zone, like Chernobyl. Eventually, he finds his way to Tokyo and he devastates the city. This part of the film, some have described as a dance of death, recalling the climax of Japanese no plays, in which there's a mass demonic figure at the end who does a dance. And Godzilla, a person in a suit, or a man in a mask, sort of gliding about the city, lighting it on fire and destroying it, is compared to that structure. Anyways, the destruction in this film is really shocking and they show a lot of footage that's pulled from World War II, but also, you know, miniatures that are filmed on set. And it really portrayed a lot of the destruction that Japanese people had seen with their own eyes, but they had not seen in film in any way because of the censorship regime. So there's a scene where a woman is clutching her children close to her and she says not to worry, they'll be with their father soon. That is a reference to the father presumably died in World War II. Images like this cannot be seen before the censorship regime. The hospitals are overflowing with the dead and the dying in another scene that's very powerful. A doctor holds a Geiger counter up to a young child's face as she's looking at the corpse of her mother. And after the Geiger counter goes off with some furious crackling sounds, the doctor looks at that character Emiko who's volunteering to help and shakes his head in dismay. She's not going to make it. So that really captures the tone of the pessimism and darkness at the heart of this movie. So Emiko takes this rage of this experience and grief to Sarazawa, who has been working on a secret weapon that he had revealed to her, but had sworn her to secrecy. She begs him to give the weapon to the military, but he refuses. Finally, she brings Ogata to intervene, and Sarazawa now knows that this affair has been going on. After a brief scuffle, he realizes that he's bringing the same kind of death that the war has brought into his life to the young Emiko and Ogata. He then listens to a chorus of children singing a mourning song on TV for the victims of Tokyo and decides that he will use the weapon, but he will be the only one who could handle it. In the end, he and Ogata are sent in scuba gear to the bottom of the ocean to deliver the oxygen destroyer to Godzilla, but Serizawa deceives Ogata and sends him back up. He then cuts off his supply of oxygen and his link to the surface so that they can't pull him back up and he unleashes his weapon on Godzilla with the intention of it killing him so that he will die with his weapon. So it's kind of a reverse there's a kind of Japanese nationalism at the heart of this gesture where there's a reversal of the American action where the American scientists and the German scientists and the Soviets were all quick to develop these weapons. Sarazawa developed a powerful weapon but tried to make sure that it wouldn't be used except for in this one circumstance. So immediately after there's not much celebration as you expect when the monster dies. There's a moment where Dr. Yamani announces prophetically, this establishing a major trope of the genre, that if humanity does not cease its reckless abuse of nature, another monster will rise in this one's stead. One thing I do find, and as you suggested re-watching this one, is that it's really not camp. You know, we associate sort of camp and silliness with the genre, and that's true of a lot of the Shara era films. They can be very, very camp, particularly, you know, the battle sort of based ones. 
but this one is very straight and very dark and the I mean the reflection on the nuclear issues is also very explicit you know it's not just subtext they actually talk about it in the film which I find interesting and like something like Shin Godzilla I think somewhat resets to that tone which I think you don't always get in some of the kind of ensuing ones oh and I, d- I didn't actually realize what you said that this is one of the first times Japanese audiences had sort of seen Hiroshima and Nagasaki reflected on screen because of the censorship. That's a really interesting point about, yeah, what uh, the sort of significance of this one. Yeah, yeah. Audiences had like a really visceral reaction to the film, but there are moments of the film that are repeated, that are referred to by later films, but it does stand on its own. I think Shin Godzilla is a close compliment, but even Shin Godzilla, like it, it has moments where levity and comedy enter in to kind of break the tension. This film is sort of just straight through and through a depressing reflection on the destruction of World War II more than anything. Yeah, I say Shin Godzilla kind of resets, but I, I, I agree it's not quite sort of weighty on the level that the original is. Mothra versus Yeah, I'll get right on into this. This is the, I guess, like fourth or fifth, I'm, I'm not being exact here, a kaiju film to come out. There had been Godzilla and then Rodan, Varan, a few of the outer space movies, that one of which featured a kind of kaiju. And then there was Mothra in 1961 and then King Kong versus Godzilla in 62. But this is the first film in what will be a sort of canonical story, bringing together kaiju from various standalone films into a shared universe. This was inspired by the Universal Monsters crossovers of the 1930s, like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, kind of, you know, shared universe before Marvel made it a a kind of household concept. Mothra, the film in 1961, was really groundbreaking for the genre. It moved beyond the formula inherited from Hollywood, in which the monster always dies at the end. Mothra survives, and her true terror was also not found in, say, like the scarring of Godzilla's flesh that was reminiscent of radiation burns, is meant to recall that kind of ugliness, or his, you know, claws and sharp teeth. Her terror instead is instilled by her beauty. She's a very beautiful creature once she becomes her imago self, the butterfly self, and spreads her wings. And she's sort of meant to shock with that. And they capture that in uh, some more recent films, too, which I appreciate. Her fairies are these two tiny women from a lost ancient civilization. They sing her into action. They sing her eggs into hatching. And they sing for help and vengeance at appropriate moments. So they're a major component of the Mothra mythos, too. And it begins the process of expanding kaiju films into other forms of the fantastic, where you have magic enters or aliens and so on. She's a kind of phoenix. She's continually reborn with each death, and a new egg arrives every time Mothra dies. Unlike Godzilla, whose worshippers had forgotten him, as we saw in the last film, Mothra's cult remains intact on Infinite Island. 
It's an island scarred by nuclear tests, but it retains something of its old life, including Mothra. So the film opens with a devastating typhoon, which loosens the egg from its location, causes it to wash up on Japanese shores. The symbolism of associating these creatures with a typhoon is rather straightforward, but noteworthy. This is a new Japan, the Japan of 1964, a full 10 years after the events of the original Godzilla film. Capitalism is in full swing, the post-war miracle is taking off, investment is up, and there are men trying to get rich real quick. So there are some enterprising capitalists who are going to try to make money off of this giant egg. So this story pits a new trope that we're going to introduce for the genre, this alliance of the journalist and scientist. So you will often end up with a character system with a journalist, a scientist, or two journalists, and one scientist, or two scientists, and you know, somebody's husband, boyfriend, brother, whatever associated with them. So Mothra's fairies are also sought by the capitalists who are ruthlessly exploiting Mothra's egg. They take the egg and transport it to a facility and try to turn it into a tourist attraction. So disgusted with humanity, the fairies give up on Japan and hop on Mothra and fly away. So at this point, our human characters feel abandoned, but they also feel guilty, like they understand why someone would just flee their society. So here things are thrown for a curve as Godzilla emerges from the mounds of soil and dirt deposited from the typhoon. He wanders around zombie-like through the urban landscape, destroying everything in his path and leaving the military helpless, just as we would expect Godzilla to do. Our heroes return to Infant Island and try to persuade the people to have Mothra help, but they refuse. Why should they help humanity when it is so ruthless and full of greed and when it has destroyed their home? An appeal is made to the better angels of everyone's nature and ultimately it's the fairies instead of the people of the island who listen. And they say that Mothra herself has been persuaded by the Japanese folks case and thus will fight. So this Mothra is aged, though the events of the last film were only like three years prior. Still, we have the sense that this Mothra is old and not in tip-top shape to take on Godzilla. So after a really iconic battle, she's bested, but not before giving her life to protect her egg. After some time and more military misadventures, the fairies sing this egg into hatching and surprise, another trope that will reappear in a lot of Mothra movies, it turns out there's twin larvae inside instead of just one. The unlikely pair manage to use their size and cocoon webbing to wrap Godzilla up and send him off a cliff into the ocean, therefore perpetuating all the creatures for future films. This is really, in my view, and a lot of other folks I've talked to, like the quintessential kaiju movie. Honda is back as director. He's really solid with his characters. There's more humor interspersed with the sensibility of dread. Pessimism is overcome in the end. The villains get their comeuppance. The mechanics of having a man in a suit battle a marionette puppet really doesn't compare to the more advanced suit techniques of the later films. But it's still fun, and with iconic musical score, the characters settling into the groove of the series, it all makes this really a powerful film in the series, and I think it's really worth one's time. Honda's anti-capitalism never really rises above greed is bad messaging, but it's welcome for this genre nonetheless. Instead of just hammering home the nuclear issue over and over again, there's other allegorical moral cases that can be made. His appeal to a universal ethic for all of humanity comes through clearly in this film and it echoes the alien invasion films that he directed and it foreshadows the future UN space age utopia of the 1968 Godzilla film Destroy All Monsters. This will also be the last film in the original series, the Showa series, in which Godzilla is a straight up villain. In the next film, one of the Mothras themselves will convince Godzilla and Rodan to put aside their differences with humanity and stand against 
an alien invader, Ghidra, a threat to everyone. This was one of the first, if not the first, uh, kaiju flicks I watched as a kid. It was on TV. It's interesting about the, you know, the, the capitalist exploitation of Mothra that I accidentally watched the original Mothra before this, but it has the same plotline. You know, it has the same thing of the capitalist exploiting Mothra, abducting the singing girls. Okay, the, the girls... They're like, there were twins that were part of like a, you know, novelty Japanese pop band thing, and they were called the Peanuts. Yeah, it's beautiful singing, and obviously, yeah, the capitalist putting everyone at risk. What do you think of the shipping of Godzilla vs. Mothra? That's a very contentious thing I've seen a lot of debates on online. Oh, uh, the shipping, you mean in the later, from the most recent, more people? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's really adorable. I totally understand why some fans were like, I guess, turned off by it, but it's silly to me to be turned off. It's cute. I thought it was a really unexpected and precious moment in the most recent film, having Mothra and Godzilla kind of have a thing. I'll say too, like my son, who's six and has a, is a huge Godzilla fan, he will often say that his mother is Mothra and his daddy is Daddy Godzilla, so it's catching on. <laughs> I, I mean, this could be considered kind of essentialist, but I think it's kind of playing on almost an idea of like a feminine and a masculine energy of these uh, protectors. Obviously, Mothra and Godzilla, they're not so aligned, but as it developed, there was this idea of, of them having this kind of affinity. And yeah, I mean, in terms of shipping, I wasn't so much thinking of the movies, although they uh, they do play on that idea of a bomb. Obviously, there's fans who've really played it up and done sort of very kawaii imagery of, of basically these two kind of bonded creatures. And I, I also find it kind of adorable. But I think it's kind of a nice archetypal kind of a story. But I am curious of what you thought of Mothra since you saw that film. I enjoyed it. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It has that kind of anti-capitalist element which, as you kind of touched on, it's more of a moral critique of capitalism. It's not necessarily what, you know, we might think of as a systemic critique, but it is kind of saying exploiting nature is, is destructive. And the interesting element of it ecologically, I guess, is that it also puts the humans at risk, which is, you know, also a trope you've seen in a lot of US disaster movies. I mean, The Jaws is a good example where commerce puts people at risk. But in this case, also having more of an element of kind of, I guess, sympathy with the non-human or like affinity with the non-human, which is sort of increasing kind of theme of this series but um i mean it's also i mean i said you know the original godzilla is very dark and some of the later ones are very camp i think the mothra ones are where it's starting to be a little camp not necessarily in a bad way i actually enjoy that element of it, of it but it's got kind of a lighter touch like, like the wacky kid you know running around escaping the goons is kind of like a, a, a good signal to like we've entered a different kind of film territory. Frankie Sakai, you know, is very, is very entertaining. I, you know, I looked him up and he's a very sort of prolific entertainer and sort of comedian. But, you know, his playing the journalist in the original Mothra, I thought was partly helped in giving it that much lighter sort of com comedic touch. And yeah, I thought he was quite charming. I mean, probably the biggest caveat people who haven't seen it is that it does have a kind of a weird blackface element where basically the so-called native who are associated with Mothra have this sort of ashy faces, which is not quite clear if that's straight up blackface or if it's supposed to be some kind of a, like, paint. Yeah, it's an interesting practice. It's a, maybe a little more straight up blackface in King Kong versus Godzilla, but uh, Hollywood had actors from all sorts of places, and Toho essentially had all Japanese actors. They could rope in 
some Americans from time to time. But the general idea was that if you were going to portray a European person, you would find a Japanese person who looked particularly European from their standards of beauty at the time. And this was a convention that then on the other side, if you were from the South Pacific or something like that, there would be some sort of face paint, which, you know, it's like, it's kind of like red face at times. There's like a black face. It, it's not to excuse it as like, it's not racist. I mean, it is, and it's not like Japan doesn't have its own colonial relationship to the South Pacific, but it is a distinct practice from American blackface, which has to do with a kind of minstrelism. And it's also, say, it's not clear if it's like a paint that's of their kind of social practices or if it's uh, supposed to actually represent their skin colour, in which case it's, it's a lot more dodgy. It is distinct from Hollywood minstrelsy, but also that it's not like Japan doesn't have its own problems. It is a kind of a regional hegemon and also oppresses its own indigenous people. The Ainu, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. Interesting connection between the Ainu and the Godzilla series is that Akira Fukube, the composer who made the iconic music, he lived among indigenous folks in Hokkaido and learned a lot of his musical stuff from them. So he brings a European classical tradition, classical Japanese compositions, and Ainu styles into his work. That's kind of how you get that medley of the unique sound to the Godzilla music. Yeah, that's interesting. Some of the music is beautiful. The singing girls are always, always beautiful. Godzilla versus Hedera also has some interesting music, which we'll be reviewing next. We might move on to that. So Godzilla vs. Hera, it was released by Toho, obviously, in, in 1971. It's the 11th film in the franchise, and it's one of only two Showa-era entries not directed by Shiro Honda or June Fukuda. So you have Yoshimitsu Tsubano taking it on as a writer-director, putting kind of a distinctive and kind of controversial stamp on the series. They, I understand the studio didn't actually like the result and generally the reception has been relatively poor until maybe recently. So it has uh, 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, for example. But it is kind of one of my faves and uh, I think you mentioned enjoying it as well. But I really quite enjoy it, although I can see it is quite, on a sort of a technical level, it, it's not necessarily the most polished of the lot, and it is very strange, but I, I quite like the strangeness. It was one of the first entries to explicitly cast Godzilla as a protector, though this had kind of been foreshadowed, had already become an increasingly kind of affectionate cultural figure, I think, as opposed to, you know, the as we've mentioned, the real darkness of the first entry. They sort of became a bit a bit softer, and, and then you eventually start to see the kaiju play more of a of protector role or, or battling the other kaiju uh, hero in this case. And I think it's also possibly the strangest Godzilla flick. It's sort of psychedelic work, pretty obviously influenced by the counterculture of the 60s and 70s. As you kind of indicated with Mothra vs. Godzilla, this series at this point has moved on from just nuclear power to broader ecological themes. So this one portrays a big guy fighting an alien that feeds on waste. So hence the title of the first English language dubbed release Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster and in a review for Our Culture Mag, 
Christopher Stewardson commented, quote, in a reflection of the original Godzilla, mankind cannot stop Hedera through conventional means and must rely on something greater than itself. With Hondo's Godzilla, it is Dr. Serizawa's dreaded oxygen destroyer. In Hedera, it is Godzilla himself. This need to turn to something almost unthinkable is significant. In the original, the oxygen destroyer is required because Godzilla, a result of mankind's reckless use of nuclear weapons, is indestructible, not bound to our understanding of conventional weaponry. Serizawa's oxygen destroyer is needed to, in its own horrific nature, right a wrong by mankind. Similarly in Hedera, Godzilla is needed because our mistreatment of the planet has wrought this toxic menace. Hedera, like the first Godzilla, is not bound to our understanding. Godzilla, a force above our control, stands in to destroy it, close quote. And yeah, I think there's a sense in some of these films that, you know, the kaiju dwarf us not only in size, but also in, it can challenge the sense of, like, humanity as the highest, most powerful species or what have you. I mean, the latest American Godzilla actually explicitly touched on that when they, uh, I think it was the new Serizawa said that we, we were basically the kaiju's pets. Despite the similarity between original Godzilla and Hedera, where humanity has to resort to a bigger kind of protector, Stewardson notes that Hedera is more optimistic than the original Godzilla, uh, particularly with the connection between Godzilla and the young lead Ken. So kaiju flicks can tend towards the technocratic. As you mentioned, they're often populated with scientists and journalists. But uh, Godzilla vs. Hedera focuses on a relatively ordinary family in extraordinary circumstances. So we start with Ken, the aforementioned kid and kind of lead character, uh, playing with a Godzilla toy, which might seem fourth wall bending, but it makes sense in a universe where Godzilla is a known fact. He's been around for a couple of decades now, so it's not necessarily a reflection of Godzilla as a fictional creature. And we conclude with the kid waving bye to the big guy. And this sentimentality, I think, suggests the possibility of a friendship with non-human beings rather than an exploitative or adversarial relationship between the kind of human and the non-human, where the non-human is conceived as either passive or purely as a threat. Godzilla has that element of, of friendship increasingly. And through to Godzilla 2000 with that amazing, bizarre quote that there's a, a why does Godzilla protect us? Uh, maybe because there's a little Godzilla in all of us. With the exception of a couple of set pieces, Hedera generally stays at the level of the family, with the professor father giving a lot of the exposition. And as I say, it wasn't reviewed that well, so Monster Zero's review called it strictly kids stuff. But while it is obviously pitched at a family audience, which you know a lot of them were, but in this case you actually have a family in the film, I do think it's intelligent enough to have something for all ages. In some ways it kind of feels to me like a precursor to Ayao Miyazaki's work and that it's kind of a family film dealing with ecological themes. It even has this kind of underlying pantheism with a kind of spiritual connection between people and nature. And particularly like in Miyazaki's work, a child specially able to commune with non-human beings. So Godzilla is kind of like a big scaly Totoro at this point.
kind of, because Zillow versus Header approaches this Emily audience with a kind of educational remit. So it uses animation and other devices to explain pollution. And if that sounds a bit dry and earnest, I mean, these films are always filled with exposition. So why not use that for real-world education? And the film also has respect for children's intelligence, with the lead kid both learning science and also contributing ideas to the solving of the problem. And if that all still sounds a bit too earnest, the movie is also utterly bizarre due to its overt psychedelic influences. So in one scene, a young man in an acid aesthetic nightclub hallucinates everyone turning into dancing fish. And presumably this illustrates something about ecology, you know, after thinking about it and reading a few things, I sort of realised, oh, well, it's kind of obvious in a way, you know, that the fish have been hurt by pollution and now the people are going to be hurt by pollution with hetero showing up. But in the moment, it's just completely confounding. And I think any movie that gives me a few moments of just total incomprehension like that gets points for novelty in my book. Ultimately, after the first battle uh, in the lead-up to the second battle, the family organises a kind of outdoor rave to offer Godzilla support, while the local elders look on in despair, kind of resembling zombies. That's another kind of almost confounding moment in it. And this movie really begs to be watched high. That's also the origin of the popular gif where Godzilla flies backwards, powered by his atomic breath. So it's not without some real silliness. Hedera himself is effectively a moving pile of sludge, which does fit with the themes of the film. The decision to show the humans killed by Hedera is relatively unusual for the genre, so you often see buildings destroyed, but really the inevitable human deaths, obviously people are evacuated, you have lots of sh shots of people running, but clearly there are going to be people dying in this situation, and this is one of the few that shows that, which is an interesting thing in a film that's generally, again, quite silly and light in some ways, but you also have this more dark element of actually showing the human consequences. And I think showing people destroyed by toxic waste versus how Hera kills people, not just, you know, by stepping on them or knocking down buildings, but through kind of spreading toxic waste, that kind of underlines the human cost of ecological destruction. It's not subtle about the, the ecological themes by any means, uh, but I think subtlety isn't, isn't always all it's cracked up to be. The creature effects and performances can be a little cheesy from this vantage point, which, you know, frankly makes it a 70s kaiju flip probably going to get cancelled for saying that. But it tries something commendably different, I think, or actually a number of commendably different things which work to a greater or lesser extent. So lots of kaiju movies, as we've said, touch on ecological themes. But this one really leans into them. There's, there's an earnest concern with ecology that really permeates the film, you know, the aesthetics and the messaging and story. 
And so as a sort of a hippie time capsule, this is the sort of cult classic that was originally unappreciated, but has kind of found a place in genre history. You do see people appreciating it now. So long as you're willing to really roll with the strangeness, there's a lot to enjoy in it. And, you know, you could argue it's not really good in the conventional sense, but it's great. I think it's just, it's really offers something quite novel. It is one of my favorite Godzilla films. It is utterly crazy and absurd, and it's full of psychedelic weirdness. And I love the guy in the nightclub on acid or whatever he's on when everybody turns to fish. That's just so cool. I will say on the pollution theme, growing up any time after the 70s, you take for granted an awareness of this sort of thing. But to give an idea of just how bad it was in Japan at this time, just the air quality, the government distributed oxygen masks and oxygen tanks on the streets so that when people were walking down the street, when they were short of breath, they could stop and get some air because everything was just so incredibly polluted, so incredibly nasty and toxic. So Hetera really is sort of a walking embodiment of this social problem. And you're right, like, unlike the other films, this one really leans into the metaphor. It's literally a monster made of toxic sludge. You know, there's so much you can do with that. And I do think that in a weird way, it resonates with the original film. Obviously, it's a very different kind of film. It's wacky and crazy and full of campy fun, but it really directly addresses a social issue. And it did so by also addressing this chasm between the young and the older folks you know like that you pointed out i mean there's a young character in this young man not the kid but he actually dies he dies very quickly in the film you kind of blink and you miss it but that's just to show you a lot of this film is a social commentary too on this rising hippie youth movement in japan and though some of the imagery from that movement is borrowed i would say the film kind of comes down pretty harsh on bano's commentary he did kind of envision it as a anti-hippie film in some ways even though it feels to us like a like a hippie film more than anything else it's interesting i I saw a review which mentioned the idea that the, the teenagers were nihilistic and they end up kind of destroying themselves. But it's definitely not how it reads to me, and it might just be because I'm inherently more sympathetic to the hippies. But like, for example, when you have all these close-ups of the placards they're making, to me it just feels like great agitprop. But yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways I think probably what it's doing is contrasting on a sort of a rationalist approach to ecology with a kind of irrationalist approach. So in some ways, despite what I said about it being at the level of the family, it is kind of advocating maybe a technocratic kind of approach to solving the problem where you have the professor father as like this, uh, you know, patriarch and rational figure and they work through the problem scientifically, whereas the hippies maybe are perceived as naive. You know, that's one of the things, of course, so with how we receive films is that obviously different audience members are going to sympathize with different elements of, of the film. But yeah, it's an interesting one in any case. I like your reading of it. It actually has me interested to watch it again. I mean, for like the 10,000th time, but to just kind of watch for that reason to just kind of observe those characters over the others. I do think that that scene of them having the concert or whatever out in the wilderness and the the, the adults who are coming to watch them, they do look like zombies. They look almost ashen-faced. It's a very strange scene. You get a sense of the chasm between the different Japans at work here. Actually, when I first saw it, I, uh, for a moment, 
Well, I thought the adults had some kind of supernatural element going on that they were like zombies or something. But it's just a strange caricature of the older folks looking on to the younger folks. Yeah, older rural folks versus younger urban folks, yeah. If you notice the father scientist, after his first encounter with a small Hedorah, he ends up losing his eye and ends up with an eye patch. He's a scientist, a doctor, with an eye patch sitting in front of a big fish tank. So it's a big reference to Dr. Sarazawa from the original film. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't pick that up. But yeah, again, it comes back to the the, the rational science. This is something I'll talk about in Shin Godzilla, but uh, I think that rationalism or democracy really runs strongly throughout all of these films. Yeah, let's move on to Godzilla vs. Biollante, a 1989 film. So I will say one thing about this film briefly before I really get started is Toho had held a contest for people to send in screenplays for a Godzilla movie. And this is the only screenplay written by, I believe it was written by a woman, and she was a dentist. So it's a very odd origin for this. And that I think that part of the originality in it kind of comes from that from like let's not have the same people write our stories over and over again let's mine the population for something new so anyway this film really holds a special place in my heart it was the first discovery i made in middle school of godzilla films beyond the original showa series and this one's immediate predecessor the return of godzilla in this new series known as the heisei series by fans we have a single continuity running from the first godzilla film that skips the entire showa era and resumes with Return of Godzilla. These films run from that to Godzilla vs. Destroya, uh, which came out in the mid-1990s. So, in this world, no other kaiju besides Godzilla existed. You have the dread of the nuclear zombie, the god-monster-turned-enraged-radioactive demon. That kind of ethos comes back instead of the heroic humanity-saving Godzilla. In the previous film, he had nearly sparked a nuclear war, by hunting down nuclear submarines, Soviet and American. This need to feed on radiation was a new aspect of his character. It had been inspired by the uh, Gamera movies, where Gamera needs to consume fire from petroleum burning. This Godzilla needing to consume nuclear power was to become central to the lore of the Heisei series and a lot of other pop cultural understandings of Godzilla. He seeks out nuclear power plants, rips the top off of them, and absorbs their radioactive content. And that's sort of what drives him. That's It gives him a, a reason to do some of the things he does and a reason to rise from the ocean and interact with humanity. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. So in this film, Godzilla had been trapped previously in the previous film in Mount Mahara, a volcano, and humanity has tried to move on. We're treated to the site of this Godzilla Memorial Lounge, a restaurant in Tokyo. It's made inside of a building with a giant Godzilla footprint for a sunroof. The character work is somewhat lacking in this film, but they're entertaining characters. But generally, we have the story of international espionage and political intrigue at the heart of this one. The country of Saradia, which is a fictionalized Saudi Arabia, battles with an American corporation, Biomajor, and with the Japanese government over the treasure trove of Godzilla tissue samples left over from his destruction of Tokyo. So though Godzilla is more or less invulnerable, he gets little cuts here and there. Biomajor threatens the Japanese government. It says that they must either give up the Godzilla cells or they'll set off explosives 
on Mount Mihara to unleash Godzilla. And in the end, of course, they do. And Godzilla is off to devastate Japan once more. But that's not all. From the genetic information of Godzilla, there a lot of work has been done uh, by scientists since the last movie, including splicing together Godzilla cells with those of a rose and the cells of the daughter of scientist Dr. Shiragami. So Dr. Shiragami is a sort of modern-day Dr. Frankenstein. He's sought to make his daughter immortal, in this form of this this mixture of rose cells and Godzilla cells. She had been killed at the beginning of the film in another biomajor terrorist attack on his lap. So he succeeded and created what he calls an immortal plant. And more than just an immortal plant, it's an immortal plant monster. It emerges from the lab, takes root in a nearby lake, and it rises up to gargantuan size. It calls out day and night with this really haunting siren song and ultimately draws Godzilla to itself. So there's much more to say about this movie without, you know, just going into everything that happens. The characters, though they undergo no real arcs of development, are really entertaining and quirky. There is a return to the previous film's mech action with the Super X ship and its anti-Godzilla weaponry. Godzilla is eventually infected with a weapon that had been made from the study of his cells, his DNA. It's called anti-nuclear energy bacteria, another Frankenstein's monster concocted by scientists, which threatens to upend the entire Cold War balance of power by rendering the effectiveness of nuclear weapons null and void overnight. That's what they say in the film. Of course, nuclear weapons still explode, even if they don't leave radiation afterwards, but I digress. This anti-nuclear energy bacteria combined with Biollante's sort of nuclear acid attacks weakens Godzilla. Biollante ends the film and immolating in a really beautiful moment. But as her sparks rise into the sky, they swirl into the shape of a human woman's face. That is the daughter. So she's not completely dead either. So once again, we have the kaiju more or less surviving in the film. So like Mothra vs. Godzilla, this film departs from its immediate predecessor's relentless dread splices in humanity and positivity, some upbeat pop music, and some more fantastical elements, including the recurring character who will appear in every Heisei movie after this, Miki Sagusa. She's a psychic who forms a unique connection with Godzilla. She's also a vehicle for this brilliant scene in the film in which all of these psychically sensitive children are asked to show their drawings. They had been asked by their teacher, draw what you dreamed about last night. So all at once, they hold up their drawings, and you have this sea of children's drawings of Godzilla, accompanied by the classic Fukubei score. So it's really, there's just little moments in this film that make it so unique, so interesting, entertaining. It really uses a lot of the Showa film's versus structure, but in a way that also combines it with the, you know, dreaded nuclear zombie pessimistic take on Godzilla. It's enjoyable. And really, I think the Heisei films after this are all downhill. I enjoy them, but they don't really compare to this one. What you said about that shot with the kids, I agree. That's a very cool moment. For me, there's a lot of really just cool moments in this film, where it's sort of one of the first, I think, to really feel like a contemporary action movie. So it's sort of in the, all the espionage. I mean, you have the opening scene where they're sort of battling over the biomaterial and, and sort of gunfights. It leads into the kind of action and, and espionage which is kind of a novel take and then I mean as well you've got in terms of the, the eco things it's interesting you know this one is obviously about 
genetic engineering, but it also has some interesting kind of pantheist, I guess, elements with stuff related to the daughter and, and the idea also of psychic connections with plants. And that's interesting because I can't help but find it a little bit funny. Like there's one of the scenes where they introduce the psychic girl and, and she's uh, in like the greenhouse trying to communicate with the plants and they come over to her and ask if she's gotten anything and she says, oh no, I haven't, haven't gotten anything. So she's just been sort of trying to commune with plants and hasn't got anything back. But what's interesting about that is that there, from what I understand, there actually is an increasing attempt for uh, that plants might or and in general parts of kind of biology that aren't sort of brains have something like a consciousness, you know, not necessarily the same kind of consciousness as the brain, but have something like that going on, which, yeah, is, for a long time has been, I think, seen as kind of pseudoscience. It may not be totally off the mark from what I understand, but, yeah, anyway, it's a, it's a very enjoyable film. Uh, interestingly, I, I understand that it didn't do well at the box office or it reviewed well, and apparently the studio saw it as a bit of a misfire in some ways, but from what I understand Nowadays, it is generally, again, like, like hetero alert to a much greater degree because it is more polished and everything. It is held in quite high regard. And I've heard that Japanese fan polls have uh, Biolante turning out on top. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. so the, the series, after the show was series ended in 1975, there was like a nine-year hiatus. And then Return of Godzilla came out in 1984 and it made a lot of money because it was, hey, the Return of Godzilla and it was more modern effects and so on. Still Suitmation and so on, but it was a little different. But the, yeah, this one, it didn't make as much money and this is what led Toho's executives to begin this endless process of saying, oh, people didn't go see it because Mothra or Ghidra weren't in it. So we got to have Mothra or Ghidra or Mechagodzilla. That moment in the history of Toho, they were reflecting back on their Showa films and on this and that. They've kind of gone with that ever since. And it's why you have this constant repetition of these figures. There's going to be three more Mechagodzilla movies. There's going to be like five more Godzilla movies featuring Ghidra. There's going to be Mothra. And a, Mothra's going to have her own trilogy, which is great. I'm, I'm all for that. But I don't like the way that Toho took it as we should have no new monsters. And unfortunately, this is a thing that keeps happening. Toho is not really into experimenting with new kaiju. And we got a few in the 2000s, but not much. Yeah, well, I mean, in some ways that segues into Shin Godzilla, because although like, this comes a lot later, it did kind of reinvent things a little bit, I think, and, and freshen things up. Although, you know, there are also other sort of beloved films in the intervening time. Do you have any more comments on, on Violante before we move on to Shin Godzilla? I kind of wish I'd put together my review a little differently, but I don't feel like that one was quite up to snuff. But I will say, you did sort of put it in a sentence that I should have. This film deals with genetic engineering. It's another return to form where it's like, let's talk about something new and serious. This is 1989, so it's just a few years from now where we're going to have Jurassic Park. And that's like the first huge pop cultural awareness of the importance of genetics. And there's definitely an, an element of like a perception of scientific hubris in a big way in, in Biolante. Onto Shin Godzilla, also known as Godzilla Resurgence. So this is a, another hard, hard reboot of the series, which came out in 2016. And interestingly, this century was helmed by Hideaki Anno of Obey Galleon fame, which is a brilliant series. But 
This is, I think, probably a more optimistic series uh, than that sort of baffling, traumatized mass of a series, but it does have some elements in common. It does have that sense of a kind of post-nuclear trauma and raising some similar questions, but maybe with more of a, a kind of a populist uh, element to it. Yeah, so I, I mentioned in my header review that the, the human element of kaiju films is often quite technocratic, but I think Shin Godzilla excels by, by really making that a feature and offering a distinctive angle on this Japanese technocracy, sort of figuring out how to how to do that in a new way without necessarily moving away from it completely. And partly it does this by borrowing from depictions of the bureaucracy outside the kaiju genre, so particularly political drama and political thrillers. This very much is, resonates with, and you have this sort of fast-paced depiction of problem-solving, or in some cases not problem solving you know failing to solve problems but bureaucrats which is reminiscent of something like the west wing although you know if you rightly hate that show you, you don't need to let that turn you off shin godzilla is just you know one other example of this kind of sense of the the fast-paced technocratic drama and it, it has some occasional sort of found footage elements which uh, which, but rather than this doesn't feel like yet another hackneyed found footage horror. It feels more like a, a sort of a political mockumentary about a about a kaiju crisis. And so this technocratic angle is kind of it's all about rapid decision making under pressure. So it's a kind of a procedural drama. Uh, and in terms of design, this Godzilla is is a pretty novel take. So he starts off wriggling on his belly, then kind of mutates into something closer to the Godzilla we know, but still he weird googly eyes and then sort of glowing from inside. So so there's it's still it's it's still a little bit different. And we get the classic bombastic Godzilla theme about thirty minutes in, then around the hour mark we get one of the more effective scenes of, of epic urban destruction in the genre. It sort of conveys uh, a sense of the urban destruction is actually something dramatically resonant, and it's not just casually flying around buildings getting knocked down. It's uh, it's more uh, more feels like. Uh, and the aftermath of Fukushima, I think there's a sense again. Uh, like with Hiroshima, that urban destruction is something more dramatically resonant. This Godzilla's real-time mutation and the way he glows from inside kind of visualise the, the nuclear origins of the creature. It's a reinvention, but one that also kind of affirms a lot of the classic elements, I think. And this design, for me, it works as an almost kind of uncanny valley Godzilla in the sense that it's not completely different. Like, for example, the American versions are often feel completely different but it's a little bit off it's not quite right and it's a kind of a defamiliarization of this figure that we're quite culturally familiar with and, and had become you know again a kind of comforting and benevolent creature and this in some ways kind of maybe returns to the traumatic origins of the genre that we, we talked about uh, with the first film as I've kind of touched on, it's that renewed take is partly a consequence of real-world tragedy. So, yeah, as we've talked about Showa-era Godzilla, Echo Hiroshima, 
whereas Shin Godzilla has has some quite widely noted resonances with the, the Fukushima disaster. So the the early emergence from the sea is very reminiscent of the tsunami leading to the disaster. It totally gives you flashbacks to the, the news coverage of that. And the origin story, uh, although this has always obviously been there, but it really emphasizes the, the nuclear mutation element. And in a cultural context where Godzilla kind of runs the risk of oversaturated parody, often is, is past that point, you know, and is fully oversaturated self-parody. In this case, the resonance with contemporary eco-crisis and the, the commentary on, on eco-crisis gives the series some new dramatic weight. And the legacy of Hiroshima is quite explicitly invoked when the international community threatens to use nuclear weapons on Japan. And at that point in the film, it kind of slows down and you even have sort of flashes of images of Hiroshima. Like the original, it's very explicit about that and sort of takes some time to, to actually talk about it. Yet the benevolent technocrats of the main cast fight back. They're concerned by collateral damage even before the nuclear option is discussed and they seek out a scientific solution that will minimize social and ecological harm. And although Godzilla himself isn't benevolent in this reboot, the lead character still asserts that humanity must coexist with him, uh, sort of touching on that, that ecological coexistence idea while taking responsibility for the loss of life. And other reviewers have kind of taken Shin Godzilla as a satire of, of Japan's bureaucracy. And it does certainly address their failure to protect citizens in the face of, of an eco-catastrophe. But I actually thought it, uh, it portrayed the bureaucracy as ultimately self-correcting despite its flaws. So they, they sort of screw it up a number of times but then self-correct and save the day. And it's probably worth noting that then Prime Minister uh, Abe Shinzo praised the portrayal of the Self-Defense Forces or SDF, Japan's military, and Japanese audiences reportedly cheered at the SDF scenes. So I think there's, there's an element there of like, in some ways nationalism, but then also probably in the lake of Fukushima, like a sense of celebrating sort of first responders, celebrating the people perceived to protect people in the face of these huge catastrophes. And there's also a kind of generational narrative where the younger bureaucrats are more effective than the older ones. So there's a point when they assemble the new team to solve the problem where they say, your thorns on the side of bureaucrats. But I think that's funny because they kind of are bureaucrats, you know, just because they're younger and, and cleverer, uh, it doesn't mean they're not technocrats. So again, that, that's in way that feels a bit like the West Wing, you know, the, the young dynamic bureaucrats who aren't really bureaucrats. Maybe being a bit cynical there, it feels a bit more optimistic than some of what uh, Anna has done before. It's like a version of Evangelion where everything turns out okay in the end. So there's the generational narratives and, and there may also be some nuances I'm missing. I might be wrong about that, that it's not, doesn't come off as a satire. But um, whatever it says or doesn't say about Japanese society, Shin Godzilla is definitely an interesting reinvention of the saga. It's well worth the watch. It's very polished, I think. And yeah, it's, it's fun and quite interesting. Did you have any comments on I will say real quick about the an optimistic version of Evangelion. There's there's a lot of shots that are just you know straight out of Evangelion, and 
some of the musical moments are are also lifted straight out of, of Evangelion, which is very interesting. And I think that mood is captured really the best by the discovery towards the end of the film. The particular radiation emitted by Godzilla has a really short half-life, and so it's it's going to decay quickly. It's not going to leave Tokyo as like a dead zone. It's not going to be like a you know nuclear wasteland. That moment of relief is like, it, it really cements the, okay, we brought up the possibility of this being a very dark film with untold human destruction, but in the end it didn't quite end up that way. And I, I like that, the relief that comes from that. As for the politics of the movie, it's... Something that I would like to talk to Japanese fans about. I've talked to some folks who like it. General people like it. There's a serious issue with it as it is considered to be a Japanese nationalist film. Um, it's very critical of the United States. But in some ways, like the, the left in Japan is just not that significant or large. And typically... The more liberal side of folks want more U.S. influence, and they want to maintain the pacifist constitution. And on the other side, you have nationalists who want to have the U.S. constitution in, in, in its entirety thrown out and to rewrite it. So there's there's some Japanese nationalism involved in this that's definitely easier to see from the eyes of someone who speaks Japanese, has lived in Japan for years who lived through the Fukushima crisis and so on. Stuff that, you know, you just don't pick up on, I don't think, just from an, an initial watch as an outsider. But I do think that you don't have to read it that way. I think that for a non-Japanese audience, not going through that politics, like, there's a lot in this film that's, I, I, I think of it as a very interesting film about politics. Like, if I were to teach an introductory film in politics class, I, I would show this because you see how decisions are made in a government and you know it seems bizarre from the outside but what's the alternative is you have no accountability to the public you have just someone making pronouncements and giving orders you know no you don't so there's a lot of interesting stuff with the politics of the film it is interesting that question of, of nationalism i mean this is quite a common issue actually with how western audiences receive japanese media but i mean it's recently uh been, been brought up with uh, ghost of tsushima where uh, there's been a suggestion that the portrayal of the, you know, the samurai is quite uncritical, and even though it sort of aesthetically echoes Kurosawa, it doesn't actually have the critical elements that Kurosawa had. It's, it's a, it is quite seems quite nationalist, and the stuff isn't necessarily obvious to to Western audiences. You know, Western from Western audiences might not pick up all of the sort of the dog whistles or what have you. But I also agree. I'm not. I, I don't think we should write off Shin Godzilla as just a nationalist text. I think it has a lot going on. I agree sort of the internal world of, of bureaucracy could start some very interesting conversations about delegated authority, you know, the idea of like the benevolent technocrat, uh, you know, in complex society. Like I think there's a lot going on in that entry. One last thing I will say is probably one of the best films that I guess for people who haven't watched a lot of kaiju films a very accessible like polished kind of entry so yeah this might be more so than some of these other entries we're talking about might be a good entry point for any listeners who haven't watched a lot of kaiju flicks
finally, we're on to our only uh, non-Toho, non-Japanese entry, which is the host, a Korean kaiju flick released in 2006, written and directed by Bong Joon-ho, which is a name you've probably heard because he, he deservedly won a spate of Oscars for last year's Parasite. And like Parasite, the host focuses on a working class family struggling to survive in a hostile society. In this case, they're hunting the kaiju to save their kidnapped daughter. And the lead, the father of the kidnapped girl, is played by Song Kang Ho, who also played the dad in Parasite. And if you've watched much Korean cinema, you've seen him many times, probably. And there's a good reason for that. He's, he's very charming. He has impressive range. Uh, and here, a decade before Parasite, he's a little more fresh-faced, which is to say he's very cute. And he's also very funny in this, whereas in some other things, he's played it very straight. So, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's I think, quite an impressive actor. The whole family is well-drawn, and they all kind of feel like kind of different kinds of archetypes uh, in an interesting way, kind of cultural archetypes. And I think there's an expert mix here of, of family melodrama, farce, uh, of course, kaiju flick, and also a healthy dose of political satire. So in a quite overtly comedic opening scene, a US military blowhard orders his Korean assistant to dump 200 bottles of formaldehyde in the Han River which is uh, an origin story for the kaiju that, uh, again, echoes an actual incident in the year 2000. So, in general, there's a deep skepticism of the US military role in Korea throughout the film, and you have historical references like a bioweapon called Agent Yellow, and of course people may be aware that the US, basically since the Korean War, has been almost a semi-occupying force in South Korea. I think there are people who perceive uh, the, you know, the US military as a protective force against North Korea, but also there's a lot of criticism of the US military role there, and that's definitely reflected in this film. And Bong Joon-ho is definitely on, on the left, and that, that really comes through. Given the origins of the kaiju genre with, again, Hiroshima Nagasaki and the firebombing of Tokyo, it's worth noting that these concerns about the US military causing ecological catastrophe in East Asia more generally, they continue through to the 21st century and they're not just limited to Japan, you know, this is obviously uh, a, a power that has, that has had an impact in, in many places. But on the other hand, I don't think it is a nationalist film. I think it's, like I'd say that, less of a, a criticism I'd level than Shin Godzilla. It's actually quite deeply critical of Korean society, and the satire of the US military is of a part with its, its satire of all sorts of aspects of society, as you'd really expect from Bong Joon-ho, who's, you know, a very radical filmmaker. Just did a little noise on that. I saw, I saw a leftist backlash in a few places against Parasite, where people said, oh, it doesn't show solidarity, and it seems really obvious to me that that film is about a lack of solidarity and how the lack of solidarity just destroys people's relationships. Whereas this is a little bit more optimistic, you know, if people want to see a story of a, of a working class family band together, 
that's a bit more positive and has that element of solidarity that is present in this one. But, you know, back to the satire, this was released a few years after the SARS outbreak and it's deeply suspicious of how the state manages citizens in a crisis. So like constantly having to clash with the really counterproductive state management of citizens. And although the story sort of bends towards conspiracy theory in a way that maybe has unfortunate resonances now in the COVID era with this kind of growth of far-right conspiracy theory, I mean, in some ways this was a product of a different time in that respect. So... You know, you have, you have to be aware of that. It's a different context. But also, I think the portrayal of, yeah, this family contending with bureaucracy, it does offer a very interesting flip side to the, the technocratic focus we've talked about. So here, the, the technocrats would usually see solving all the problems are actually just causing a lot of problems, and we're seeing kind of working class, in some ways, perspective on that. And... Bureaucrats are not to be trusted, they, they don't have citizens' best interests at heart, and the family has to take matters into their own hands. And at one point in the climax, the, the former student radical and kind of fail-son alcoholic now, Namil, returns to his student days by chucking Molotov cocktails, uh, this time at the creature realm in the government. And there's another little interesting kind of almost comedic moment where he's uh, betrayed by one of his old student radical friends who's now kind of sold out and he's a he's a yuppie in a very nice office and he just sells Namil out. Uh, whereas, yeah, he's, he's kind of one of those people who's clung in some ways to the past and, and just, as they sort of degenerated into, into alcoholism and depression. But, you know, he gets to chuck some Molotov cocktails at the monster. And, I mean, the creature is, is a glorious creation, you know, of, of sort of newly invented kaiju. It's, it's really one of the best kaiju, I think, and definitely one of the best CGI kaiju around. And so it's this kind of bounding four-legged amphibian with a huge disgusting mouth for a face, and the CGI allows it to have a lot of dynamism. I don't sometimes... CGI is kind of, I think, unnecessary in some films and can, does things that practical effects could do equally well. But in this, it really does things you can do with CGI that would be a lot harder to do with any other technology in terms of the, yeah, the dynamism and the movement of it. And yeah, aside from the sprawling urban rampages that, that Kaiju fans have come to expect, although those are actually on a smaller scale, it's not so much knocking down buildings as, as sort of taking out people in the park and often returning to this kind of subterranean or aquatic territory that comes from the Han River. And you have these more sort of intimate subterranean scenes which lean into the horror element where you have sort of tentacles and regurgitation keeping things pretty gross. And again, the kind of genre mixing uh, is, is very nice and quite expertly handled, I think. And it also plays very heavily on threat to children, which you can see as kind of cynical manipulation. But I think it, it works. I mean, particularly because... The family seem to really care about their, their kidnapped daughter. Like, it's, it's really the driving force of the narrative for the, for the leads is getting their daughter back. And it's an ultimately kind of bittersweet story, but it is more optimistic, as I've said, than Parasite. So any lefties uh, complaining about the lack of solidarity in Parasite might like to watch this again as, as an alternative. 
And personally, it's my favourite 21st century kaiju flip. I think it's way up there with any kaiju flicks in general. You know, back to, you know, the origins of the genre, I'd say this is actually one of the greats, in my opinion. I think you should, uh, this is directed to the listeners, you should watch everything by Bong Joon-ho. But in particular, there's an interesting companion piece to the host uh, by him, which is the the Netflix original flick, uh, Okja which is in some ways an even more overt eco-satire, but in this case it has the kind of kinder kaiju rather than the malicious kaiju, although still pretty cluelessly destructive, rampaging around, destroying things pretty much by accident, but uh, much more so the villains in Okja are the humans exploiting the creature, whereas the creature is, you know, less malicious than, than the one we have in the host. But yeah, definitely another great, entry and another one that's probably quite accessible to contemporary audiences uh, whereas you know going back to the 60s and 70s that those movies are great fun but they may be less accessible as a, as a starting point for, for audiences so yeah anyway great it's a great one yeah did you have any comments on the host for, for me it was the film that really introduced me to korean film i had heard at the time from friends like you know you really should check out some korean films but like you know here's a kaiju movie so of course i'm going to check it out and I was blown away. And yeah, Bong Joon-ho is just, he's so talented. He is so, he captures such powerful quirks of individual human beings in these impossible situations. It's its so interesting and it's so funny. It's like a, there's a really like a, a black comedy element to it. Like, you know, what you're talking about a guy throwing the Molotovs and you know, there's this one moment where he's like winding up for this like heroic throw and he loses it behind him and you know he swings and there's nothing there and it like lands behind him it's just it's just so ridiculous but it's just so it says so much i'm a like i said a huge huge fan of this is just a film in general like beyond just as a kaiju film i rank this up as one of my absolute favorite films period it is a wonderful companion to parasite and you're right i never thought about the contrast with you know the lack of solidarity in parasite which you know like as you pointed out is that really a criticism if that's the point of the film is to show the consequences of that but anyway but then you see on the on the reverse side you see this family in this film and it's just really amazing beautiful film you mentioned this being an entry point to Korean cinema. I mean, this was the point really where you had this wave of, of what was called new, new Korean cinema. And there's a lot of really great films during this period. So it's obviously Bong Joon-ho's work, but also like Park Chan-wook. I think he was more my entry point with uh, the first joint security area. But then, you know, the real crossover hit from Park Chan-wook and from New Korean Cinema in general was, was Old Boy. But, yeah, I mean, The Host is part of a wave of, again, of really great films. And Parasite, I think, is a very belated recognition of that, like, really past the tail end of that great, great cinema, Hollywood kind of finally recognising it. But, yeah, I mean, I think this, again, I mentioned the genre mixing, and I think the comedy you mentioned is, is a big part of that, how it sort of manages this balance of all these different tonal elements i mean there's there's one moment which i was i'm not sure quite how to take these scenes you sometimes get in, in a lot of korean films where the morning is a lot more visible you know people will really overtly sort of cry and wail in a way that you don't really get in kind of anglo cultures but i think in this 
it is actually played comedically where you kind of have the scene where they're kind of crawling crawling over each other and like wailing and it just gets it just escalates and escalates and yeah there's there's a lot of really incredible kind of strange comedic moments like that which again i think a kind of in some ways it's it's almost like a parody of, of family melodrama i think which was not really something i expected to see in a kaiju film so yeah it's a great great film thanks for coming on i mean is there anywhere people can see your work if they want to seek it out yeah if you want to check out that book you can get it on amazon giant monsters in our world it's just a collection of academic writings on kaiju and i have a piece in there other than that if you google my name jace short and red wedge magazine you can probably come up with the rest that essay is worth checking out because it does touch on the the ecological things which we've been talking about and gives more of a kind of a general perspective on those ecological themes whereas we've been kind of talking about specific films that gives a nice overview of the genre and how it how it approaches these uh these ecological themes so definitely well worth checking out and again thanks for coming on thank you so much Now for your No Fate Project report for December 2020. This is coming from the timeline formerly known as Z3, now redesignated K1 due to strange new developments. Turns out kaiju are real. Seven have emerged across seven continents. I'll summarize the news so far. The first kaiju to emerge was the Antarctic Protector, so named by the No Fate Project's new head, Dr. Cassandra Tate, the protector is an intersex chimera described by some as a koala fish mutant bird, a kind creature mixing animal features like Bing Bong from Inside Out. Who's your friend who likes to play? Bing Bong, Bing Bong. rocket makes you yell hooray. Bing Bong, Bing Bong. What exactly are you supposed to be? You know what's unclear? I'm mostly cotton candy, but shape-wise, I'm part cat, part elephant, part dolphin. Dolphin? Their egg was discovered by scientists from the No Fate Project, Dire Station Antarctica, in June 2020, right next to the station. This was the largest egg ever discovered emerging due to ice thaw. Scientists can't go far in midwinter, but it practically advertised its presence. A CAT scan revealed the outline of the ancient creature, which was surprisingly dormant rather than dead. In mid-September, the same 24 hours that the zombie outbreak began, the creature stirred. At that point, we had no idea the protector was benevolent, so the people were mostly pretty free. Uh, with the notable exception of Dr. Tate, who was oddly calm. The protector finally emerged on October 5th, 2020, World Habitat Day. Turns out they have a healing eucalyptus blast that clears pollution and radiation and rapidly heals various ailments, including the zombie plague. 
Although the No Fate Project has released the cure for the zombie plague free of charge, the Protector's role in reversing the plague has been decisive. Our thanks and seasonal well wishes go out to the kind Chimera, if they're listening. After curing the infected at Dire Station, the benevolent Kaiju set off on a world tour. They restored New Zealand and the Pacific Islands, then moved on to North America. Their first major stop off was here in San Francisco, where I got to see them knock down a remaining colonizer monument. No idea if that's because they're a comrade or because they're a big clumsy Kaiju. Either way, I cheered. After touring North America, the Protector entered the Atlantic Ocean, and they're currently on course for Europe. For the first two months, the Protector was the only real-life kaiju known, but throughout December, others have stirred, one for each continent. While the Protector is an ancient chimera, their origins shrouded in mystery, the remaining six kaiju appear to be sudden, recent mutations, evolutionary prototypes resembling existing indigenous species in all but size. Like the Antarctic Protector, Asia's kaiju appears to be benevolent. The Japanese Big Tanuki, a fantastically well-endowed native raccoon dog. The Big Tanuki emerged appropriately enough from Tanuki Lake near Mount Fuji before heading northeast. Citizens of Tokyo were disappointed when Big Tanuki bypassed them entirely, heading straight to Fukushima. Like the Protector, Big Tanuki has a healing blast, which he appears to charge through his impressive endowments. Tanuki set to work blasting away the radiation around Fukushima, and NGOs report that biodiversity is rapidly returning to the area. Unfortunately, the benevolence of the Antarctic Protector and Big Tanuki does not appear to be shared by the remaining five kaiju. In short, we're faced with two protectors and five destroyers. Australasia's kaiju is the Megadramias, a giant emu from Australia's great western woodlands. As an adaptation to the continued slaughter of emus, the species appears to have quickly evolved into a more aggressive form, indiscriminately tearing humans limb from limb. The Dromaeus does not kill humans for food, but rather for self-preservation, as her diet remains largely vegetarian. Fire seems to be the only thing that scares the beast, but as bushfire season sets in, that's a weapon which would cause more harm than good. The Dromaeus first claimed 200 lives in Perth and is now heading east, with most of Australia's major cities in the southeast of the country. Like the other kaiju, the Dromaeus appears attracted to population centers. The press have dubbed this conflict Emu War II, and the humans appear to be losing again second time around. Yeah, for context, I tend to call the Emu War Australia's Vietnam their great defining loss. In the 30s, the military attempted to clear out all emus, and the emus won. An imperialist military lost against a flightless bird. All of this has happened before, and all of this will happen again, and nobody has a plan. Africa's kaiju has been dubbed the Aggregator. 
a giant dung beetle which emerged from the Western Sahara. The theory on the aggregator's origins is that drought led to reduced amounts of dung, so the species grew in size to cover ground between food sources quickly and became omnivorous. We mean literally omnivorous here, eating everything from concrete to animals and people. Whereas his predecessors rolled around growing balls of dung, the aggregator rolls around a giant ball of debris to eat later, which also serves as a weapon. After demolishing Layun, the largest city in Western Sahara, the aggregator headed east across the Sahara. Meanwhile, South America's kaiju is a giant macaw named Mito. Apparently awakened by the forest fires in the Brazilian Amazon, the parrot's vibrant blue, red, and orange feathers are matched by her blue, red, and orange fire breath. Fortunately, Mito has not encountered many population centers as yet, but she's currently heading northeast apparently due for Brazil's capital city. North America also has an ornithkaiju, a three-headed, six-winged bald eagle, Personally, I reckon we should have called it a Meroraptor, uh, but the press has dubbed him Bird of Prey. A mutation emerging from Nevada's Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository, Bird of Prey boasts a nuclear radiation blast that causes rapid mutations, with humans mutating into rampaging zombie-like feral ghouls. Just as we're defeating one kind of zombie, another arises. I have Radex from the No Fate Project to hold off Rads. His poop is also radioactive, so the nuclear waste disposal issue is getting worse. The creature irradiated Las Vegas first, then elected to go west, crossing through California and reaching the Pacific Ocean this morning. I guess this is the start of his Rampage World Tour. With Trump dead in the crossfire, his far-right personality cult has taken up the bird of prey as their new god-emperor. Uh, unlike the protector, uh, he didn't hit San Francisco, thankfully. He passed down south around L.A. As for the seventh and final kaiju, Europe is beset, as usual, by a British monstrosity. A red squirrel from London dubbed Hazel. With Britain's indigenous red squirrels threatened by gray squirrels introduced from America, Hazel emerged as a defensive mutation, first wiping out gray squirrels, then setting out to kill all humans. She has a dedicated following of legions of regular-sized squirrels, which, true to their nature, crack and eat nuts. This has earned them the collective title of Hazel and the Nutcrackers. Sounds like a band. Here's hoping they don't go on tour. Hazel's attack strategy is attacking but not destroying buildings, so the people flee and encounter her army of vicious nutcrackers on the street. Citizens are advised to stay where they are, not leave the buildings, and invest in steel sports cups. Hazel and the Nutcrackers continue to destroy London, and some pundits propose building a wall around London to protect the rest of Britain and Europe. The rest of Britain and Europe wholeheartedly agree. 
As yet, none of the kaiju have encountered each other, but genre fans await these confrontations with a mix of trepidation and elation. Fortunately, the zombie plague is under control. With the combination of a patent-free, no-charge cure and the protector's eucalyptus breath. But now, humanity faces a new threat. All kaiju appear to be aiming for human population centers. With the Antarctic protector and Tanuki restoring ravaged territory and the remaining five destroying it, environmental groups highlight that humanity is the common source of the various blights that led to these mutations. Religious groups also say the kaiju are here to punish us for our sins, albeit moral rather than ecological sins. Uh, we might have to be on guard for a rise of ecofascism as well. Then there are the kaiju truthers. Even here in San Francisco, what do they think was rampaging down Castro Street the other day? It wasn't a pride parade. All of the kaiju are resistant to conventional weapons and strengthened by nukes. So we're gonna need a scientific solution. Scientists say the sudden emergence of these giant creatures on every continent is an example of convergent evolution, driven by changing environmental factors. However, the Antarctic protector's origins have no scientific explanation as yet. As for your intrepid reporters, I'm stuck in San Francisco with the California border closed, and Ani is still on the base in Antarctica. It kind of sucks that we're on different continents again, cut blocked by geography. We had a good run together. Uh, Don Levy remains hospitalized in San Francisco on the Pikmin Foundation's dollar, so at least I'm here to keep an eye on him. Yeah, we tried to investigate his old basement at the base, but he installed a lot of defenses, particularly some old robots that shock anyone who tries to interfere with them. Fortunately, non-lethal at this stage, but we've decided to leave them be. The mysterious Mr. Morrell from Miskatonic has sole access. Nobody trusted him anyway but that's not helping. Yeah, I meant to tell you about the taser Roombas. Uh, how, how's everyone else? Better. Dr. Tate is running things now, and everyone but Morel loses and Don Levy. Not that that's saying much. Uh, she's she's pretty good. I mean, she's really pushing that global protection society, though. Mm -hmm. well, what's the deal with that? Well, I don't really know. You, you join by pledging allegiance to the Antarctic Protector, but the rest is only known to members. That's like the first stage, and the rest you kind of have to join to, to find out. So it still seems a little weird to me, and Tanuki is clearly superior anyway. Clearly. Uh, he has a superior pair of... That's all, folks. If you've enjoyed this episode, please contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash jetpack1917 or give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And happy holidays, continue the war on Christmas, and we'll see you in the future.
seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? We was lapped in the horseless carriage. The airplane, the telephone, the electric light, the vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh in outer space. God help us in the future.